You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's Bible reading is Romans 14. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to him. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but if it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Please pray with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to look at your word this afternoon. Uh, Father, we do pray that you would shape us by your grace, uh, that we might maintain the unity of your church. Uh, by accepting our brothers and sisters uh, who see things differently. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Uh, how can I possibly accept someone who sees things differently? Whether that really is a big thing in our culture, a big issue in our culture. For example, how can I accept someone who doesn't believe in climate change or someone who watches ABC News and reads The Age rather than watching Sky News and reading The Herald Sun? Someone who voted the opposite way to me in the same-sex marriage plebiscite or who thinks COVID-19 is one big conspiracy? You can't accept those sort of people. You've got to unfriend them. You've got to unfollow them. But really, you've got to cut them out of your life altogether and do all you can to silence their voice. Right? How can you possibly accept someone who sees things differently? Right? It's a big issue in our culture and it's a big issue in the church. Right? How can I accept a brother or sister in Christ who sees things differently? Well, not necessarily on all those issues I've just mentioned, but on what Paul calls in Romans 14, disputable matters. And now we'll get into the details of Romans 14 and what disputable matters mean in a bit. But first, let's look at the context of Romans 14, right? Because it's the context of Romans 14 that reminds us that we can accept our brothers and sisters who see things differently because we're a people shaped by God's grace. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you flick back to Romans chapter 12? If you look there in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul starts by saying, in view of God's mercies, he's reminding us that as Christians, we're a people who by faith in Christ have personally experienced God's grace. So we're to live a life that is shaped by God's grace. In chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says that part of living a life that's shaped by God's grace is being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Oh, which might even lead us to think counterculturally about how to relate to people who see things differently to us. It should lead us to that. Which is important because in chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, Paul says that even though we're united as one body of Christ, there's many members in the body of Christ. So there's lots of differences. In chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, Paul called us to love one another sincerely despite those differences. And to live in harmony with one another. Right? Chapter 12, verse 16. And to live at peace with one another. Chapter 12, verse 18. Last week, in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, he said he reminded us about our continuing debt to love one another. In chapter 13, verse 13, he said, do all you can to avoid dissensions and jealousy. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to be a people shaped by God's grace. It looks like being committed to loving one another, to maintaining unity with one another, to accepting one another despite our differences. Right? It's in that context. And that in Romans 14, Paul zooms in on really a specific issue that's threatening the unity of the church in Rome. And we see in this chapter that there are two groups within the church in Rome, groups that Paul refers to as the strong and the weak. Uh, the strong or, or strong in faith well, were probably mostly Gentile Christians. So either though not exclusively, but because in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul identifies as one of the strong. And the weak or weak in faith were probably mostly Jewish Christians. 
And that though, once again, probably not exclusively, but because before becoming uh, Christians, at least some of the Gentiles had probably become Jews, right? looking for a, a more conservative religious expression. So they were, were some of the most zealous converts to Jewish practices. And now it's important to be very clear as we look at this passage uh, that the strong and the weak in this passage are both genuine Christians. Well, when Paul talks about them being strong or weak in faith, he's really talking about how they apply their faith with regard to the two disputable matters in the church. These are the matters he refers to in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Except the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. Literally, these are matters of opinion, matters of reasoning or debate. And if you look at the chapter, you'll see that there are really two main disputable matters in this church. First, there's the issue of religious diet. If you look at verse 2, you'll see that the strong in faith eat everything, including meat down in verse 6, because they are convinced that no food is unclean. You see that in verse 14. In contrast, we see in verse 2 that the weak in faith only eat vegetables. Right, something I reminded Gabby of during the week. Right, verse 6, they abstain from meat because verse 14, they consider some foods to be unclean, right, to be ritually unclean according to the Old Testament law. So putting this together, the weak in faith are centred to be Christians from a Jewish background uh, who'd strictly followed the Old Testament rules about clean and unclean foods for their whole life. Right? In fact, they were so serious about following those rules that they'd become vegetarians. Right? That, that wasn't required by the Old Testament law, but in pagan Rome, it was really hard to find meat that was kosher. So they refused to eat any meat. So now, even though they've become Christians and they've most likely heard Jesus' declaration in Mark chapter 7 that, that all foods are clean, uh, it just feels wrong to them to, to go down to the local market and pick up a pork roast. It just doesn't sit right. So the first disputable matter is about religious diet. Uh, the second disputable matter is about religious days. Now take a look at verse 5. You'll see in verse 5 that the weak consider one day to be more sacred than another, uh, while the strong consider every day alike. Now, for example, that these predominantly Jewish Christians had grown up observing the Passover. By keeping the, the Passover festival sacred well, was a mark of real devotion in their faith. So now, even though they've become Christians, right, they know that Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb, that the Lord's Supper is now the meal of the new covenant, that they know that stuff. And yet every time the Passover comes around, it just feels wrong not to celebrate it. Now, let me be really clear. It's not that the weak in faith well, want to do these things to earn their salvation. Why do they know that they're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone? But that they're not like the legalists in the book of Galatians. Right? These are believers who've been brought up with these practices, that they're so deeply ingrained that their consciences just won't allow them to let go of them yet. 
as to these two disputable matters are leading to two divisive outcomes. Look in verses 3 and 10, where you see there that the, the kind of free and easy Gentile Christians who eat all foods, that they're looking down on their Jewish brothers and sisters with contempt. You can always hear their voices. Right? Oh, why do you have to be so strict? Right? Why do you have to be so old-fashioned? And then in verses 3 and 4 and 10, You'll see that the more strict Jewish Christians are passing judgment on their Gentile brothers and sisters. And maybe you can hear their voices. Right? How can they be so casual about their faith? Why don't they take things more seriously, you see? Why aren't they more disciplined? And so with the unity of this church being threatened, Paul gives them five reasons why they should accept their brothers and sisters. That their brothers and sisters... Uh, who see disputable matters differently. Uh, First, in verses 1 to 3, he says, uh, you should accept your brother or sister uh, because you know that God has accepted them. And there's a bit of detail in these verses, but but, uh, you'll see that Paul starts in verse 1, speaking to the strong, uh, saying, accept the one whose faith is weak. And then he ends verse 3, saying, for God has accepted them. Of course, the word accept there means a whole lot more than just kind of merely putting up with them, right? It means to receive them, to welcome them, to embrace them. And accept is in what's called the present tense, which tells us that Paul's not talking about one sort of a kind of one-off gesture of acceptance, you know? He's talking about an ongoing pattern of acceptance. Now, maybe you can imagine the strong saying, well, okay, Paul, you know, I'll accept them, but but only so I can straighten them out after a good argument. But Paul says, no, right? He says, accept them without quarreling. Right? Accept them because God has accepted them. You see, we don't get to decide who's accepted it to God's people, do we? Right? It's God who decides. Right? So, so who are we to reject someone? who God has already accepted. Well, that's Paul's first reason. And the second reason in verses 4 to 9 is that you can accept your brother or sister who sees disputable matters differently because you know that you both belong to the Lord and you're convinced that doing what pleases him matters most. Uh, if you scan through this section, uh, you'll see that the, the word Lord occurs nine times. So it's pretty clear that the Lordship of Christ is the big theme in these verses. Right? The point is that the, those, who've ex- uh, those who've been accepted by God, right, verses 1 to 3, uh, are those who've surrendered their lives to serve Jesus as their Lord and Master. Uh, so if you look at verse 4, Paul says, uh, who are you then to judge your brother or sister? Well, they don't belong to you, Paul said. They're not your servant. They belong to Christ. They're his servants. And praise God for this. Right? Because if I was your Lord and you were my Lord, I reckon we'd be much less gracious than Jesus is. But right? Jesus, who, who Paul says at the end of verse 4, uh, is able to make a stand among his people to the very end. Right? Because absolutely nothing can separate us from his love for us. 
In verse 5, Paul picks up the issue of religious days by saying each one should uh, be fully convinced in his own mind. And with those words, Paul introduces the principle of conscience uh, that really runs throughout this passage. Right? Our conscience being how we reason within ourselves about what's right and wrong. Here, it's about being fully convinced, persuaded in your conscience uh, that what you're doing pleases Jesus, your Lord. Because as Paul says in verses 6 to 8, as Christians, we should really live our whole lives to please Jesus, our Lord. Five times in these verses, you can count them if you like, Paul says, whatever you do, whatever we do, we're to do it to the Lord. We're to do it for the one who we see at the end of verse 9, died and was raised so that he would be Lord of all. That's what you look at verse 7. Well, you'll see there that, that none of us are to live out, live or die for ourselves alone anymore. Why we live and die for the honour and pleasure of our Lord? So how does this apply to the disputable matters? Well, in verse six, we see that the strong who eat uh, the strong who eat all foods are convinced that they're pleasing their Lord. So that they give thanks to God every time that they munch down on their bacon sandwich. But we also see that the weak in faith are pleasing, I think that they're pleasing the Lord too. They give thanks to God every time they abstain from eating the bacon sandwiches. You can accept your brother or sister who sees disputable matters differently because you know that both of you belong to the Lord. And you're convinced that doing what pleases him matters most. A third, verses 10 to 12, you can accept your brother or sister because you know that God is the judge, so ultimately you're accountable to him. In verse 10, Paul really kind of eyeballs the strong and the weak, right? He repeats his commands from verse 3. You weak ones, Paul says, why do you judge your brother or sister? And you strong ones, why do you treat your brothers and sisters with contempt? That sort of judgmental attitude is completely unacceptable, Paul says, for God is the judge. Look at verse 10. In the end, we'll all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 12. Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Uh, the quote from Isaiah 45 in verse 11 really drives home the fact that the God's judgment is universal, but all of us will be judged by God. And yet God's judgment is individual, but all of us will be judged by God personally. You see that in the, in the little details here, verse 10, we all. Verse 11, every knee, every tongue. Right? Verse 12, each of us. But you see Paul's point. If you're tempted to kind of sit on your judgment seat and condemn your brothers and sisters in Christ who see these things differently, well, just remember that God is the judge, not you. And remember that at the final judgment, I can't stand before God in your place and you can't stand before God in my place. Each of us have got to stand on our own two feet before God. So maybe we'd be better off getting busy trying to sort out our own lives before God rather than trying to sort out everyone else's life. 
forth. In verses 13 to 21, Paul says, you can accept your brother or sister who sees disputable matters differently because you've made it your aim to maintain unity with them, encouraging them by lovingly restricting your freedom rather than destroying them by selfishly flaunting your freedom. That's my summary of these verses. Let's see if you agree. Look in uh, verse 13, Paul starts saying, therefore, right, but because of my argument in verses 11 and 12, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Now, this is probably addressed to the, the weak and the strong, but, but the rest of this section certainly addressed to the strong. Uh, instead, Paul says, make up your mind, right, literally, make the judgment. I know some of you like puns, right? this is Paul's pun. He's saying you want to make judgments? We'll make this judgment. Right? Make the judgment and not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And the word stumbling block refers to causing offence to someone that leads them to trip up in their faith. And the word obstacle refers to an offensive attitude or behaviour that tempts a brother or sister to sin. So Paul says that the strong in faith are to make up their mind and not to put any obstacle in the way, excuse me, of their weak out brothers or sisters. In verse 14, Paul reiterates the principle of conscience. Right? Because objectively, you'll see in verse 14, objectively, Paul knows that no food is unclean. But he also knows that subjectively in their conscience that the weaker brothers and sisters in Rome are absolutely convinced that some foods are unclean. Right? It's a bit surprising to us, I reckon, that at the end of verse 14, Paul says that if anyone regards something as unclean right, in their conscience, then for that person it is unclean. So what does he mean by that? Well, I think mean, he means that if, if someone is fully persuaded that the food is unclean, but, but then that they choose to eat it anyway because they're pressured into it, and then they're willingly doing something that they believe is sinful, right? that they believe dishonours Jesus. So in verse 15, Paul says to the strong, can't you see how your brothers and sisters are distressed when you kind of flaunt your freedom in Christ by eating those foods in front of them? That's not acting in love, Paul says. If you really love them, their distress would be your distress. Remember chapter 12, verse 15, in the body of Christ, we don't just do whatever we want. We rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn? If you imagine the strong might be saying, well, the, the, the weaker brother or sister should just suck it up, you know, grow up. At the end of verse 15, Paul tells them just how serious this is. He says, if you pressure your brother or sister into eating against their conscience, you're in danger of destroying someone who Christ died for. Strong language. Right, Paul's saying that if they sin against their conscience in this matter, what's to stop them getting in the habit of sinning against their conscience in lots of things? Right, that's a path that leads them away from Jesus towards destruction. Therefore, Paul says, verse 16, do not let what you know is good 
right? That, that, that's the freedom to eat all foods. That's a good thing. Do not let that good be spoken of as evil. That is, don't eat all foods in such a selfish and unloving way that it leads your weaker brother or sister to say that eating the food itself is evil. Right? Your behaviour might be evil, but the food itself is good. In verse 18, Paul reminds these strong believers that the kingdom of God is about serving Christ, God's king. Not serving yourself, but serving Christ. So in verse 17, he says that if you're living under the rule of Christ, then you'll see that what really matters most is not being able to eat whatever you want whenever you want to. What matters most is righteousness, by living in right relationships with God and others. Uh, it's peace, by right? being at peace with God and others, and it's joy, by right? joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so at the end of verse 18, Paul says, if you serve, your, uh, if you serve Christ by maintaining unity with your brothers and sisters, uh, you will please your God. Well, which, of course, from chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, is really the whole point of the Christian life, right? To, to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. Now, you'll also, or you'll also receive human approval, God says. Uh, God says, well, Paul says, God says. Because you're seeking to be at peace with your brothers and sisters uh, and you're seeking to encourage them in their faith. And we, which leads to verse 19 where Paul says, Therefore, uh, let us make every effort to do, do whatever leads to peace uh, and to mutual edification. Well, those are our aims. Right? That the peace and unity of the church uh, and the edifying, right? That the building up of our brothers and sisters in their faith. Well, we're not just about expressing our personal freedom in Christ at all costs. Paul says if you do that, verse 20, you'll destroy the work of God for the sake of food. That's the choice, right? Be a part of building up God's work in the life of your brother or sister and in the church, or be a part of destroying God's work in the life of your brother or sister in the, and in the church. Ah, I know which one I want to choose. That's why in verse 20, verses 20 and 21, Paul affirms again that, that all foods are clean. Right? He knows that. Uh, but also what matters most is not causing uh, your brother or sister to stumble. So you can accept your brother or sister who says disputable matters differently. Because you've made up your mind to maintain unity with them, uh, encouraging them, but by lovingly restricting your freedom rather than destroying them by selfishly flaunting your freedom. A fifth, verses 22 and 23. Uh, Paul says you can accept your brother or sister uh, because you know that both of you are convinced that you're doing what honours Jesus. Now look at verse 22. Paul says, so whatever you believe about these things, Keep between yourself and God. Right? He's not saying that they're never allowed to have a conversation, but, but he is saying that the, the strong aren't to, to be kind of continually campaigning for their position in the church. Right? They're not to be publicly flaunting their freedom in Christ in, in such a way that it places real pressure on their brothers and sisters. 
Eat your bacon sandwich at home, Paul's saying. Right? You don't have to lobby for it to be the catering at the church picnic. Although Paul does say, right, blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Right? It's a real blessing to, to be able to enjoy all the foods that God has made and not condemn yourself. Right? But, Paul says, whoever has doubts... All right, they're not convinced that that honours Jesus, uh, is condemned if they eat. Right? But because their eating is not from faith, which is to say they're not really convinced. They don't really believe that eating that food would honour Jesus. Paul's message to the church in Rome is as a, as a people shaped by God's grace, you can maintain the unity of your church by accepting your brothers and sisters who see disputable matters different. Right? And he gives them five reasons for why they can accept them. So how might we apply this discussion of disputable matters to us today? First, we've got to be really clear on what a disputable matter is. Right? It's clearly not everything that professing Christians disagree on. Right? Because some things are not disputable. Right, some doctrine, for example, is clearly taught in the Bible. Right? Jesus is God. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He, he, uh, we can be saved by putting our faith in him. Right? Those things are not disputable. Right? So, so frankly, if a professing Christian claims that they are disputable, we don't have to maintain unity with them. Right? Paul picks up on this in chapter 16, verses 17 and 20. You can look it up later on. Right, so, so some doctrine is clearly taught in the Bible, and some behaviours are clearly sinful in the Bible. I mean, you could make a massive list of this. Greed, violence, racism, sexual immorality, neglect of the poor and vulnerable. Right, those things are not disputable. Once again, if a professing Christian claims that they are disputable, we don't have to maintain unity. Right, disputable, matter, disputable matters are, are not uh, simply everything that, that professing Christians disagree on. Right, the, the disputable matters in Romans 14 have four main characteristics. Right, first, uh, they were about particular areas of religious practice, conduct. Uh, second, uh, they were about a, a change in religious practice between the old and new covenants. Uh, third, there are about religious practice that, that some of the Christians in Rome believed were wrong, uh, but they were actually right or okay. Uh, so the fourth characteristic of the disputable matters in Rome uh, is that the weak in faith well, were unnecessarily limiting their freedom in Christ. And with those characteristics in mind, it's just important to be clear that what we might call disputable matters today have at least two important differences. The first is that they're not about a change between the old and new covenants. That's not our struggle anymore. And second, they don't always have those same categories of one group being right and one group being wrong. It's important to remember that. So let me finish by giving you two examples of disputable matters today. The first example uh, is the example of drinking alcohol. So I think it's pretty clear in the Bible that uh, it's acceptable for Christians to drink alcohol. 
but in moderation. But to use the categories of Romans 14, in some churches, the strong who think it's fine to drink alcohol are kind of looked down with contempt on the weak who think it's sinful. You know, why do they have to be such killjoys? Or why don't they just enjoy themselves, have a drink, you know, loosen up a bit? And the weak who think it's sinful to drink alcohol pass judgment on the strong as they drink. You know, if only you guys were really serious about your faith. Well, you wouldn't be so casual about drinking. So how do we maintain unity? Well, we maintain unity by applying the, the principles of Romans 14, but perhaps in particular by urging those who feel free to drink alcohol, right, but who, who know that their brother or sister has a, a conscience issue with it, uh, to willingly restrict their freedom out of love for their brothers and sisters. But by all means, have a drink at home or with others who can genuinely give thanks to God over a glass of wine. But don't pressure your brother or sister to drink against their conscience. Another example might be the question of who should get baptised. Once again, I think the Bible is pretty clear that Christians should get baptised. But Bible-believing Christians do disagree on exactly who should get baptised. Is it okay to, to baptise the children of Christian parents, or should we wait until they grow up and profess faith for themselves? And now, of course, most of you know that, that here at DPC, we're convinced that it honours Jesus to baptise the children of Christian parents. Right, but we certainly don't want to pressure all parents to do that, especially those who aren't convinced of that. Right, so to, to maintain the unity of our church, uh, we offer what we call a prayer and thanksgiving service. Right, so at DPC, all parents can, can do something with their children that they are convinced honours Jesus. You see, we live in a culture that it finds it really hard to accept people who see things differently. But as a people shaped by God's grace, I'm confident that we can be different. I'm confident that we can maintain the unity of our church by accepting our brothers and sisters who see disputable matters differently. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you've saved us by your grace into your people. And we pray, Father, that we would be a people shaped by your grace, who give ourselves to maintaining the unity of your church, uh, in particular by accepting our brothers and sisters uh, who see disputable matters different. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.